Before the holidays, we were marching our way through the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel, the story of King David. And we had reached the twilight of his years, his reign coming to an end, his life coming to an end. And we found in 2 Samuel 22, David sings a song, a psalm of praise, thanking the Lord for all the ways that he had delivered him from the hands of his enemies. So if you have your Bible with you, let's turn together to 2 Samuel 22. As Lord willing, over the next four weeks, we will finish what we started together. While you're turning there, I think that our return to 2 Samuel this new year gives us an opportunity to revisit the question briefly, why expository preaching? Why, at College Street Baptist Church, is it essential for us to move chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through every word of books like 2 Samuel, or Acts, or 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Why? Why are we committed to that style of preaching at College Street? Four quick reasons. Number one, because God's people are hungry. Remember the story when Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, and Matthew tells us, after that time, Jesus was hungry. Perhaps one of the biggest understatements in the Bible. Hasn't eaten 40 days, 40 nights, and you know, Jesus was hungry. And Satan comes to him and he tempts him in that moment of hunger, and Jesus' response is this. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What Jesus is telling us as mankind is that the hunger that you have is not something that this world can provide. You are hungry for every word that comes from the mouth of God. Not a word, not some of the words, not the words you like. Jesus says the hunger inside of you is for every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But what normal Christian is going to wake up in the morning and say, you know what? I'm kind of hungry for 2 Samuel this morning. Nobody does that. Not going to happen. Maybe... If they're a quote-unquote good Christian, they wake up and they're hungry for something from the Sermon on the Mount. Or maybe they read Philippians 4.13 for the hundredth time. Or maybe they go turn and find Jeremiah 29.11. Or maybe they're really good and they read the Bible verse of the day on the app on their phone. Expository preaching is like when you've never had Thai food before. And your friend is like, I'm going to take you to this Thai restaurant. I know you've never had it before, but you're going to love it. I'm going to be right there. I'll show you exactly what to order. And you're like, fine. And you go, and they help you. And you're like, wow, who would have known that Thai food was this amazing? And you go home, and all of a sudden, you're feeling hungry for Thai food. And it's Friday evening, and you're like, you know what? I think we should get takeout from that Thai place again. That's what expository preaching is supposed to do. 
I'm supposed to take you to all these ex exotic places, right? Parts of the Bible that people never visit, like Zechariah or Nehemiah or 2 Samuel, and show you what to order. And once you've tasted it, you're like, wow, this isn't so scary. In fact, this is amazing. And all of a sudden, you have this new hunger. You're discouraged. It's Saturday morning. And you find yourself saying something you thought you never would. You know what? I am hungry for that verse in 2 Samuel. And you find yourself turning there and reading it and feeding your soul. We do expository preaching because God's people are hungry. Secondly, because it's my job. 1 Timothy 4.13 Until I come, Paul says, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. 2 Samuel 2.15 Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. Why? Because he's in the act of rightly dividing the word of truth. He knows how to get the fork and the knife out, cut this thing into bite-sized pieces, and feed it to God's people week after week. As a pastor, it's my job to feed the sheep. Thirdly, because the word saves. 1 Corinthians 1.21 Since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. If I got up here Sunday after Sunday and I told a few funny jokes and one or two inspirational personal stories and then left you with a little nugget of wisdom, would that save anyone? No. Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. We preach Christ crucified. The message he's talking about is found here and nowhere else. Christ crucified. This is the word that saves. Fourthly, we're committed to expository preaching because the word is a rock. Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. Can you imagine coming in here after the week that we've had after the unthinkable has happened, deranged Americans have stormed our nation's capital in an effort to overthrow an election. Some claiming even wanting to assassinate lawmakers and political officials. Imagine standing on that unshaky ground all week and then coming in here only to find I have a few warm and fuzzy personal stories to comfort you. No. We need a rock. We need an unshakable foundation, something that will never change no matter what happens Monday through Saturday. We need to look into heaven and see a king who sits on a throne that is never going to be threatened by insurrectionists. No arrogant anarchist is going to ever be found taking an Instagram picture in his seat. Thank God Jesus does not need our help to stay in power. Why would we gather together to worship him if he did? 
He does not depend on us. We depend on him for life, breath, existence itself. He is our rock, our solid rock. So let's stand on him together this morning as we return to 2 Samuel chapter 22. Let's stand together as we hear God's word. We're beginning in verse 32. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, those who hated me, and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. You may be seated. This morning we reach the third verse of David's victory song, and we're going to study it in three parts. We're going to see the king's armor, we're going to see the king's activity, and then the, the king's acclaim. And so this portion of the song begins with the king's armor, and actually verse 32, it's, it's a taunt in the form of a question. Look at verse 32. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This is a declaration of exclusive trust. There is, David says, quite literally, no other gods but him. Who is God but the Lord? Who? Who? In, in comparison to the magnitude of his infinite power and might and knowledge, wisdom, strength, and glory. 
whatever piece of metal, whatever politician, whatever dinky god or demon goat you are worshiping is nothing. Nothing in comparison. Allah is nothing. Zeus is nothing. Money, nothing. Power, wealth, fame, country, career success, all nothing in comparison with the Lord. They are not gods. They are nothing. Who is God but the Lord? No one. And who is a rock like our God? No one. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Even this great nation this week we've seen, its capital can be rocked by a few idiots. This nation will one day crumble. Your job one day may crumble. Your health, your house, your family, all other ground is sinking sand. There is only one rock. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. This question is the first piece in the king's armor. When the king girds himself for battle, he puts on this belt of truth. There is no other God. Who is a God like the Lord? Who is a rock like our God? There is none. Continuing in verse 32 through 36, we see the rest of the king's armor. How the Lord has girded and armed his hands and his feet for battle. Verse 34. He made my feet like the feet of a deer, and he set me secure on my heights. David says, I've still got spring in these legs because the Lord has shod me with the feet of a deer. Verse 35. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. So David is like a Hebrew Odysseus here. He's able to bend this bow his hands are trained for war. The king is armed, both hand and foot, ready for battle. Verse 36. You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your gentleness made me great. So as David heads into battle, what shields him from the attacks of the enemy and from all dangers? What is the shield he's holding in his hand? It is the salvation of of his Lord. Brothers and sisters, as we look at this display, the king arrayed in his armor, dressed for battle from hand to foot, ready to fight, hands and feet trained, shod, shield at the ready, belt of truth girding him. We see the king's armor and it's like looking in a mirror. King David is not a mighty warrior at this point in the story, if you followed with us in the fall. This is old, end of his career, David. Weary, broken down, chased all over God's green earth by his own son and before that by King Saul. And yet David is able to sing this song at the end of his life. Because David also is looking in a mirror. He's looking 
at the Messiah to come, his own offspring, Jesus Christ. But brothers and sisters, if this is what the king looks like in his armor, then this is what you and I look like in Jesus Christ. Our hands and feet have been made ready for battle. And as we look at Jesus, our Savior, we can say with confidence, your gentleness, your meekness, your condescension to me is what makes me great. A believer dressed in the king's armor is one who is willing to strip themselves of every preference, every opinion, everything of personal advantage, and to gird themselves with a servant's apron like their king and wash the feet of the saints. This is the armor we are girded with. It isn't face-painted, bare-chested, waving a flag in the rotunda of the capital. It is by the bedside of a dying shut-in, sitting quietly, singing a hymn or two to comfort them as they prepare to meet their maker. It's greatness that comes through gentleness, humility, meekness. It's the weak who must always win. It's the weak who feel like they have to claw for power. It's the weak who feel like they cannot survive if they were to sink to the bottom. The strong are not afraid. The strong thrive as the last because dressed in the king's armor, it is his gentleness that makes us great. Brothers and sisters, the Lord dresses our hands and feet to do things like change diapers, teach kids Sunday school, serve that super annoying student that you don't want to have to see on Monday with gentleness and kindness. Care for your customers with compassion, to be gentle with your coworkers, to fight the battle of the Lord one deed of love and mercy at a time. The king's armor. Secondly, David sings of the king's activity. We find in verse 37 and following many artful ways of describing what's going on, but the activity is singular. The king's activity is one of crushing his enemies. He's crushing his enemies. Verse 39. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. Again, verse 43. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. So we look at the king. There he is, girded in all of his armor. And the activity we see him engaging in, he is taking his heel and he is grinding it into the face of his enemies. Crushing them. Pulverizing them. He walks this wide path laid before him, and this path, we are told, is paved with the neck of the serpent. And praise God, this king shows no mercy to those who hate him. Verse 38 and 39. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them. I did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise again. They fell under my feet. 
Who wants a king who almost wins the war? Who wants a king who almost finishes the job? Who almost catches the bad guy? Who almost takes care of the enemies who are seeking to destroy us? Who manages to come very close to winning the war? No. We want a king who shouts in victory, it is finished. That's what we want. His enemies never rise again. There is no empire strikes back to this story. He pursues them. He chases them into whatever cave or hole or tomb they have hidden themselves. He drags his enemies out into the light of day. He puts his boot on their necks and he crushes the life out of them until they never rise again. We need to see the king and his activity. We need to know that this isn't just the song of David. This is the song of Jesus, our Savior King. And he sings this over us. If he does not completely finish off our enemies, then brothers and sisters, we have no hope this morning. Do you want a Jesus who almost kills your sin? Who came this close to defeating death? Or do you believe these to be the very words of Christ? Verse 41. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, those who hated me, and I destroyed them. And yet if we believe these to be the very words of Christ, why is it that you and I so often live as though they are not true? Why are we living as though sin still has some power over us. As though we still did have a little bit of fear of death. Either it is finished or it ain't. <laughs> there is no almost. Either his heel has crushed the head of the serpent or it hasn't. This is the point. When we hear the king singing and what we hear him singing as those in Christ, we ought to be singing it as well. What we see the king doing, we should be doing as well. The king's armor is our armor. The king's activity is our activity. We march behind him, and if our king is treading over serpents, then his subjects better be following him, treading over serpents behind we experience the victory of the Lord in our own bodies, our hands, our feet, in the paths we walk, the battles we wage. But as Christians, we're foolish if we think the battle we are intended to fight is one dealing with worldly powers, wielding actual physical shields and swords and guns and cannons. If that's what you think, then we can go back to my office and we can talk about the medieval crusades and the conquistadors who slaughtered countless thousands of people in the name of Christ. And we'll see how that is not at all what the Lord Jesus entails. Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers. Our enemy is even greater than we could ever imagine. Cosmic. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's who we're treading over. That's who's been crushed and pulverized. Cosmic powers. 
The head of spiritual forces, we grind the skull of evil itself into the ground. This is the king's activity, and this should be our activity as well. We walk over the head of the serpent when we walk across the street from our white neighborhood into the black neighborhood that no one should go into. We walk over the head of the serpent when we cross the lines from rich to poor. We walk over the head of the serpent when we march into the classrooms of our country with compassionate hearts, not only telling students that Christ died to save sinners, but then actually teaching them as though they had eternal value and dignity in the eyes of God. We march over the head of the serpent when we choose to go to church on Sunday morning. We march over the head of the serpent when we reach for our Bibles instead of our phones. We march over the head of the serpent when husbands are found sacrificing everything for the sake of their wives and children, when we find children obeying their parents, when employees are demonstrating respect and honor to bosses who do not deserve it, when young men are not consumed with pornography but with a passion to serve the kingdom of God. Christ's victory over sin needs to be seen in our victory over sin as well. The fact that Jesus has his foot on the serpent's head is seen when you and I are putting our foot on his head too. I wonder what sin you should be crushing this morning. Fear. Deceit. Anger. Gossip. Laziness. Lust. The victory happens one footfall at a time. One opening of the Bible at a time. One going to church at a time. One scripture memory verse at a time. One faithful day at work at a time. One prayer at a time. We crush the head of the serpent. We enter into the king's activity. One footstep at a time. The king's armor. The king's activity. Finally, David's triumph song ends with the king's acclaim. The king, this king that we're listening to singing, he receives glory and praise and service and honor from all of the nations. He's both the chief of the Jews and of the Gentiles. Verse 44, David recalls his own vindication. If you remember his story, how he was chased out of Jerusalem by his own people. And the vindication when he was able to re-enter Jerusalem, verse 44. 44, you delivered me from strife with my people. That word strife has the idea of a court lawsuit where one group takes another to court in order to condemn them. We can see this statement take on even more significance when we hear it proceed from the mouth of Jesus himself. He was the one ultimately rejected by his own people. In that very city of Jerusalem, put on trial. Suits brought against him by his own people and condemned for what? 
proclaiming to be the Messiah, the son of David. But in the courtroom of God, the Jews proclaimed, not our king. We have no king but Caesar. And when asked what to do with their king Jesus, they cried, crucify him. And they did. They pierced their king hand and foot. They hung him to die before the watching world. They locked him in a tomb. And the Lord Jesus says, God vindicated him. And how? He brought him back out. And then he put him on a throne and said, all y'all, Jews, Greeks, I don't care who you are, you're going to bow before him. Verse 47. The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance. He brought down peoples under me. He brought me out from my enemies and exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. God brought Jesus out of the tomb and put him in a place where he would receive the acclaim of every creature in all of the universe. Enemy or friend, all will bow before him and worship him. You kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Verse 50. He sings this victory song from his throne over all the nations. For this I will praise you, O Lord. Among the nations I sing praise to your name. Brothers and sisters, when all the nations on that last day come, and they're bowing their knee, and they are below the throne of Jesus, and he's singing his triumph song over all of creation and receiving the acclaim of all the peoples of the earth. Don't you want to be there in the front row bowing down and worshiping him? We want to be the first. Verse 44, a people who did, I did not know served me. That, that's us. People who were formerly far off, estranged, alienated from Christ. Now we are his servants. And this is what fuels our evangelism. It's not merely the churchgoers, the religious, the people you would expect who become the servants of Christ. It's his enemies. It's murderous Pharisees like Paul. It's tax collectors like Matthew. Prostitutes like Mary Magdalene. Thieves. Breathing their last breath hanging on a cross. This king will be praised by people yet to be known. We don't know who they are. But we know that they are. That there are people out there. That we have brothers and sisters yet to be drawn into the family of God. There are sons and daughters of God scattered out there yet to be discovered. Servants of Christ yet to be brought into the service of their king. And we must go out there and share the good news with them. Your king, the prince of the nations, the king of heaven, the crucified and risen savior, the son of God, Jesus Christ. He is on his throne and he is calling. He's calling for you. He wants you to come and serve him. And to be blessed in singing his praise forever. King's armor, 
the king's activity and the king's acclaim. Just in case we had any remaining doubts, in case we weren't 100% sure, you know, maybe it's not appropriate to uh, attribute this song to Jesus. Maybe that's not who he was really talking about. Well, verse 50 and 51 clear everything up for us. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praise to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. We are not ashamed to bow the knee this morning. We want to surrender everything to the offspring of David. We are pleased to be conquered by him. We are satisfied with nothing less than belonging completely to him. Our joy is to be able to say, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. And when all the world is bowing the knee before him and he is receiving the acclaim and the praises of all of the nations and heaven and earth itself bends before the weight of his glory, we will be able to say, that is my king. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this song. We look forward to the day when we will be able to hear you singing it over us. And we will join our voices with yours. Lord Jesus, in the meantime, we pray, gird us, help us to have the courage to join you in crushing the powers of darkness in our own lives and in this world. We pray that we would give you all of the praise, all the acclaim. We trust in you, our rock and our king. Amen.